Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. Today I'm interested in the role of students in international relations, their contribution to diplomacy and problem-solving platforms, such as international institutions and professional organizations. Today I'm joined by Max Browning, who recently completed his MA in Chinese and Russian at the University of Edinburgh. He's also studying his second master degree in East Asian relations, currently writing his thesis. Max's leadership journey started in 2019 when he founded the China Future Society at the University of Edinburgh. The society was focusing on improving understanding of Chinese culture, politics and economics among students. Then in 2020, Max established One Edinburgh, a student-led initiative designed to build networks for the future by enhancing locals and students in cultural exchange and collaboration. This initiative later on became One Scotland Initiative. In addition, Max has served as a secretary of the Scottish Parliament's cross-party group on China and also as a member of the Scotland China Business Forum. Max was recently awarded a Schwarzman Scholarship, so he goes to China where he will be studying at the Tsinghua University. Max, welcome. Thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to join you today. Your introduction is actually remarkable, and I'm very happy that uh, I can have you today for the interview because I believe that you are one of those students who are really making the difference. Let's start with the first question. Do you believe that students have a responsibility to engage in international relations and to contribute to diplomacy and multilateral initiatives? And if so, why? Why students should do this? Yeah, good question. Well, I think, you know, to keep the answer simple, Yes, I think students should get involved with international relations and diplomacy, but I'm not saying that that's easy to do, um, especially not when you're a young person who's either still at university or you've just graduated um, from university. But it is important because, you know, we are the generation that is going to face some really monumental challenges that are global challenges. You know, we, we're looking at climate change, we're looking at pandemics, economic crises, and so it's really in our interest to be able to input into the current decision-making process and also to enlighten ourselves and get a good understanding of how decisions are made, why they're taken, and the impact that they have so that we're able to f sort of calculate that into our, own, um, into our own plans for the future and also to be able to contribute effectively and make sure that our voices are heard. But it's a difficult thing to do, as, as I said before, you know, Currently, most of the important decision-making bodies, whether that's uh, in, in government, so politics, um, whether that's in business or in academia, most of them are dominated, you know, rightly by professionals who've had a lot of experience, who have had uh, the, the years, the decades of kind of climbing the ladder to the positions of leadership that they're in. I'm not saying that young people should automatically be included in the leadership or decision-making process, but I do think that there should be scope for contributions from students, from younger people um, at that level, because they are important for sustainability in the, in the long term. 
And do you see a difference between bachelor's degree students and master's degree students when joining those initiatives? Like, how, how do you see the difference between those undergraduates and, and, and postgraduate students? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because in some ways there are differences. You know, master's students do take it that level further in terms of really delving and doing a deep dive into a particular topic that they are interested in. In that sense, I find working with master students, they're, they're normally more focused. They have a better and a clearer understanding of what they want to do in the future. And that makes it easier for them to contribute effectively because they know where they fit into the, to the larger scheme of things. But at the same time, there really isn't a difference in terms of the kind of soft skills and the basic traits that are required for leadership that are you know, ambition, drive, charisma, a basic level of emotional intelligence as well and really you get that across the board students whether they're bachelors or masters when we had those initiatives in the past you know we were speaking about students and they were doing initiatives like on the campus or or inside the university but how do you think students can level up and go international with their projects because many times i see students with fantastic initiatives beautiful projects like really you know like absolutely amazing ideas but it's all inside the university yeah it's an interesting question i think the first thing that's required is you have to be shameless in putting yourself out there you have to first of all believe in yourself and that self-belief needs to translate into an ability to reach out to people that you might otherwise have been slightly intimidated by or hesitant to reach out to. And it's easy to do that these days with uh, with the tools that we have available, especially LinkedIn. You know, you always send a personalized connection request to someone, you know, that's a leader in an industry, um, just explaining what you're doing and seeing if there's uh, any scope for collaboration. And you have to be aware in that process that, you know, a lot of the time you will get a no answer or you will get, uh, you know, people who just don't see the opportunities to work together. Um, but, you know, for every five or six no's you get, you will also get a yes. So as long as you frame it in the right way, as long as you're able to to present yourself and, and not be scared to reach out to, to people online, there's lots and lots of opportunities. And also speaking particularly about taking things international, well, you know, the pandemic has shown us that you can pretty much do everything online. I mean, the basic level of interaction is possible through Zoom, through Teams. And, you know, people understand that I can speak to someone in China or in South Africa or in California, and we can be discussing collaborative opportunities in Scotland, so long as they're able to kind of see the vision, they're able to see the impact that they can have by working with a student organization. Do you remember your first LinkedIn message in that way? And, and, and <laughs> when, when was it? My first LinkedIn message. Um, my first LinkedIn message was actually at school, so quite a long time ago now. It was um, an author that came to do a discussion, uh, like a, on his new on his new book, and. Um, I didn't, you know, I hadn't really had that much networking experience and I, I had sort of not taken the opportunity to go up to him afterwards and, you know, uh, his business card and, and his his number. He'd been writing about um, the Rwandan genocide, which I thought was particularly fascinating. Um, so I thought after that uh, event, oh, what a wasted opportunity. I could have continued the discussion with him um, outside of that space. 
And then uh, I downloaded LinkedIn and uh, did a little search, found him and sent a connection request and was able to continue the discussion online. I'm sure that there are many students who would like to write to someone, but they are struggling what to put in a message. Like, should I be, should, should I have like two pages of what I want to do? Or should I be very short and say just, you know, I'd like to establish a connection. What would be your, your take on this? What, what would well, be your recommendation for students? There isn't really a whole lot of choice because in the personalized connection request, I think you're only limited to like 150 characters. So you have to keep it short. Um, and it's, I think in my experience, it's better to keep it short. You have to remember that when you're reaching out to people, often that are very you know, busy, that have busy schedules, that engage with a lot of people um, for various reasons, but probably because they're leaders, you have to present them with a clear ask. And you have to be very concise in that. So make sure that you're contacting people that are relevant, where you can see an opportunity to have a further discussion with them that benefits both of the parties involved, so yourself, but also for them as well. Um, and also don't, you know, don't worry a lot of the time, uh, you know, leaders, especially more experienced, perhaps older leaders are keen to, to hear from younger people as well. And that might be the driving force for them to connect with you. But just make sure that it's not too muddled, that there's a clear approach to your connection request. Right. Sometimes uh, I meet students and they, they tell me, look, we are locals. We, we, you know, we don't have ambitions to go international. And some students say, like, we don't study international relations. We study medicine or history. What would you tell to those students who are not involved in international relations as a study subject? but their projects might go international if they can overcome that sort of barrier to go international. Mm. Well, I think the first thing to say is you don't have to be engaged in international relations and you don't have to want to take what you're doing international either, but there are some benefits to doing that. So, you know, whether you're looking at a basic level, if you're running a student business, for example, right? you may find that there's a larger customer base abroad. You know, there are more opportunities to, to really further the, the, the business that you're working on by working with stakeholders in, in other countries. You may also find if you're living in a, a smaller town or, or city um, that there are limited opportunities for growth within that area. So, you know, it's one thing being in London, a city of you know, 10 million people. Another thing being in Edinburgh, which is like half, half a million people. You could be in... Durham, which is, I think, sort of 40,000 people. So you're really sometimes limited by the um, geographic space that you're in. And in that sense, it does make sense to, to have at least, if not a national, then an international um, kind of perspective uh, on things. And what I'd also say is that it's a great experience to work with uh, international uh, stakeholders. You know, it's a cultural experience. You're able to uh, get some uh, some input from people with different uh, backgrounds and experiences. So, so I think that, uh, yes, as I've said, that there is this limit to the geographic area that you're in. And therefore the opportunities um, to work with international 
um, stakeholders are sometimes necessary to to take hold of those, uh, but also it's a great experience. It's a cultural experience. You get to uh, hear insights from people that have a totally different background and maybe a different perspective on things as well. And having a mixed variety of perspectives is always important, no matter what you're doing. Um, it helps with your understanding of the world in general, but it also helps with scenario planning and with identifying future opportunities. That's, that's great. In terms of the collaboration among students, sometimes there is an aspect of being at a post university or not post university or somewhere abroad. And sometimes students are afraid like, or maybe shy to write. Let's have a student somewhere in Asia, Africa, and they would like to collaborate with someone like you from the University of Edinburgh. How do you see when someone who is not from England, who is not from the prestigious university, is sharing ideas and thoughts with you? What would be your message to those people? Hmm. Well, my message to, to those people would first and foremost be not to think of those kind of universities as superior, right? That, you know, they may be better in the rankings. The rankings are done on a whole host of, you know, random things to do with research, sometimes not even to do with, you know, undergraduate students at all. Like the University of Edinburgh is, I think, 15th in the world, but that's pretty much all based on postgraduate research and has nothing to do with with undergraduate students at all, really. So um, the first thing is to kind of not focus too much on the on the difference in, in academic institution and focus more on the added value that you as an individual can bring. And, and really it comes down to ambition, motivation. Do you have an idea of, of what you can add that people um, at the University of Edinburgh can't? So of course, if you're a student that is studying in you know, the Central African Republic, and you're working on, you know, an ecological project there, you know, that is something that no one in Edinburgh could even really come close to, to having the same level of involvement in. And so you have to really focus on what you're bringing that is unique. Uh, but also, we're just, you know, everyone is just really a student <laughs> that is trying to get through you know, his or her degree. And I don't think I've ever come across a situation where um, any student has been reluctant to to meet someone new from abroad and kind of uh, hear from them. So at least for me, my my door, my LinkedIn is is always open, and I love hearing from people in different countries. That that's very important to hear because I think we should encourage people, especially students from abroad, into international collaboration with the top people, with the top students, no matter which university. I also have a similar point of view because I'm lecturing and I'm lecturing at different universities. And sometimes you have a ranking, a posh cover, but inside you meet students and there is not a big difference between students in England, Africa, Asia, Europe, because from that point of view, when you start the university and you are 18, maybe 19 years old, you are at a very similar level of knowledge as well. So, so I fully agree with you. and with that encouragement that you stated. Let's have a look at the skills. When you establish one Edinburgh, one Scotland initiative, what were the most important skills that you had to have to pursue that vision? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think there's a difference between the skills that were required and the skills that I actually had, uh, which, okay. were, which were very limited. 
to be honest. And that's been the, the kind of the best thing about running this organization, um, which has been very difficult and time intensive and has taken up so much, uh, you know, mental capacity and physical capacity, you know, to constantly be on the ball, constantly be pushing it forward. Um, but it's a great learning experience and it's a great opportunity for personal growth. So looking back with hindsight, I would say that the most important skills to have, first of all, is the ability to work as a team, which is just so important. I've seen so many um, student organizations and to be frank, you know, businesses and, and other organizations fail because there's one driving force, which is the, the you know, maybe the founder, the person who's in charge of the of the organization. But that person is unable to convey the same uh, ethos and the energy in the team and is also perhaps unable to, to delegate responsibility. So if you're taking anything and you're trying to build it up and expand it, you have to be able to delegate. So teamwork and delegation are definitely the most important skills to have. But then I think that it's not necessarily a skill, but you also need to have the self-belief, not delusional self-belief that, you know, everything you do is brilliant and whatever you touch turns to gold. But you have to be able to um, take setbacks on the chin, evaluate them and understand, you know, how they have led to personal growth and how you can avoid those mistakes in the future. But ultimately know that what you're doing has value and it has a, you know, strong potential and therefore, you can feel confident in promoting it to other people. And how did you develop your leadership skills or knowledge? Mm-hmm. Are you the person who are reading those books which <laughs> every year, like how to be the best leader, how to delegate people? Or you're watching YouTube videos or maybe you are following some like idols, like some experienced managers or, or how is it in your case? You know, I've never read a leadership book before. Um, because I think different, you know, you, you can be a certain type of leader. And I do also think that leaders change and they develop, of course, you know, naturally as they progress through careers. But for me, the most important thing was, first of all, to find, you know, out what sort of a leader I am. Because there are some basic intrinsic things that uh, that you should be able to recognize. But it's very difficult to recognize, you know, from within what type of a leader you are. So I actually had, again, this was an opportunity on on LinkedIn. Um, one of the, the sort of leading um, leadership coaches, uh, Andrew Talents is his name, and he reached out and basically said, um, you're a young leader. I like to work um, with, with young leaders on a sort of pro bono basis. Do you want to do a session with me to find out what type of leader you are? And so he uh, went through this kind of um, interview process with me and sort of note, made some notes and there was sort of multiple choice questions and all sorts of kind of evaluative questions. And at the end, he was able to present me with an overview of the characteristics that I demonstrated in, in my personality and how that translates into leadership. And, you know, not everything is positive. You know, leaders have different strengths and weaknesses. Some are more assertive, some are, um, are perhaps less assertive and, and able to, to take in a broader um, spectrum of views, but that might lead to sort of more inefficiency, but it's also better for fostering a welcoming environment. So it's very complex. You have to be able to also lean into your strengths, though. And so for me, I know that as a leader, um, you know, I 
I can be quite assertive and quite focused on on you know progress and action points and getting things um, sorted. And I'm I'm very focused on the organisational and communicative side of of leadership. Um, and so, for me, it was a case of not um, being afraid to lean into those those strengths, but also be aware of some of the weaknesses. And so early on, I think I've improved on this. One of my weaknesses was, for example, um, I need to be a better listener, a more active listener. And that is something that I've tried to improve on in the last two years. And I think I have by just really doing a self-check every time we have a leadership meeting and saying, all right, you know, take in a broad um, perspective uh, on things and see how that can be effective in leadership. So we had a dream, a vision, a leadership, and now let's talk a little bit about barriers. Mm-hmm. When you were trying to pursue your vision, what were the most annoying or ridiculous <laughs> barriers that you faced at the time? And maybe right. you can also tell our viewers how to deal with it. Because I think, and from, from what I read, many people, they don't give up immediately, but their enthusiasm to pursue the visions and dreams is going to be very limited. And this is super bad for business, for leadership, for international collaboration and affairs. So what would be your piece of advice for those? Yeah, well, there's two points there. So the barriers and how to overcome them. The barriers for One Scotland Initiative were, frankly, very complex and, uh, and you know, obtuse i'll say is <laughs> when, you, when you say complex in which way like you didn't have yeah. time to do the things or money or people or, or how is it a sort of it's it wasn't to do with time or people because um the great thing about running a student-led organization is that we have so many enthusiastic volunteers who give up their time that are students so that wasn't the the issue the two problems that we face one is the money problem um and really uh the sort of base for the money problem comes from the other problem which was to do with broader level support and the reason i say it's sort of the complex issues that we face as an organization is that we are focused on cultural exchange but ultimately also enhancing the student experience to build collaborative and effective networks for the future but because we're a national initiative, because we work with universities in Edinburgh, not just the University of Edinburgh, with Napier, with Harriet Watt, those are two of the other universities in the city, also in Glasgow and in Stirling as well, um, there is a lot of competition between universities. They're competing for students, particularly international students because of the high fees, and there is a real reluctance to be involved with collaborative initiatives that span the universities and that benefit students from multiple universities. And I think it's because, you know, students uh, at the University of Edinburgh is supposed to receive support from the University of Edinburgh um, exclusively, and the University of Edinburgh doesn't want to uh, spend resources on helping students from, from other universities. And that's not just, you know, unique to the University of Edinburgh, it's a case for all uh, universities broadly in, in Scotland. Um, and so we face the challenge of trying to do events, for example, that span student populations at different universities, and then not receiving the right level of support from the individual institutions because they didn't want to support something that benefited other students. So it is, a little, in my opinion, quite childish. 
Um, they are, you know, a lot of these universities are huge bureaucracies. That's another big problem we've had trying to actually get to the decision makers because you're sent around in a in a loop of bureaucracy the whole time. Um, but the way to to overcome that, <laughs> in my experience, um, has been to try and take a step back uh, and look at the bigger picture. So, for example, in Edinburgh, we have the University of Edinburgh, we have Napier, and we have Harriet Watt. But they're all in Edinburgh, and ultimately, Edinburgh is governed by the council, by the city council. So what we ended up doing was we went to the Lord Provost, who's like the mayor of Edinburgh, and said, we would like your support as the leader of the city to basically help us bring these, you know, bridge the university's gap. Because when the mayor of the city sits down with the principals of the university and says, look, listen, this is an initiative that benefits the city, and we would like your involvement, the universities take that much more seriously than a student coming up and saying, you need to do what we say because <laughs> we don't understand why you're taking this, this decision. So uh, going a level, I'm not going to say a level higher, but like a level broader uh, was very important for overcoming that particular challenge. So how do you see the involvement of teachers, lecturers in those students' initiative? Should students be independent and just do their initiatives by their own? Or should they get some lectures, maybe some prestigious professor on the board? I would always recommend getting a professor on board if you can. Uh, it's not a case of the inadequacy, right? That there's 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 nothing to say students can't organize their own initiatives and lead them, and actually that's what they should be doing. By having a professor involved, you're not necessarily saying this is the leader of the project or the initiative. You're having them on board for support and for advice. And I think that, one, it's always useful to have that um, bridge between the, the generations. You know, professors are almost always going to be <laughs> significantly older, probably, than, than students. Um, and it is important to, to have that diverse input from the younger generation and from the older generation. To professors, you know, it's very difficult to become a professor. And so you do have to have um, that level of understanding and intelligence and expertise as well to actually get to that position. Um, but also, I think one thing that students sometimes overlook is that a lot of um, professors and lecturers and, and tutors at universities are also very open and willing to help with, with student-led projects. And I think there's sometimes this reticence from students and this sort of um, almost being frightened of of uh, going to one of your your teachers to kind of put forward a proposition or get involved in a project. Um, so for me, I think the benefits are clear. There are really no downsides to having involvement from from an academic. Can we say a few words about specific aspects or elements of international collaboration? I mean the students' initiatives. So I have an initiative in Edinburgh. I have a team of people, a great leader named Max. And now, what would be the first international initiative or task? Or, or what, what would be this in practical life? Like, what should I do? Should I organize a workshop online? Or should I write a letter to Africa and to ask a few people to join me? Or should I publish a paper together with the international students? Can we, can we say a few, maybe three, four specific elements as a, as a recipe for our students or viewers that are struggling to form that idea? Like what 
international collaboration is in a specific way? Well, we're lucky in Edinburgh and in Scotland more widely that we almost have the international community in our local environment. So in the in the university, the first point is first to think of what is the student demographics at the university that you're at if you are enrolled as a student. And I can tell you, for example, at the University of Edinburgh, there are 49,000 students and 60% are international. And they come from over 100 different countries. So you don't even need to um, start building a connection uh, that's outside of the country to have an international connection because you can connect with someone that's at your university that's maybe come from Africa or Asia or, or America. Um, so before you look too far and wide, look at your local environment first and see whether there are people you can connect with that are probably going to go back abroad in the future. And that's extremely important because one of the things that One Scotland is focused on is taking the opportunity of having all these international students in Scotland to build a community and a network. And we know those students are going to go back to either their home countries or abroad. And so you're basically investing in that future network, um, having that international scope by making those preparations in the local environment. If you don't have access to international students in your local environment, I think that, as I mentioned before, online uh, you know, networks are extremely important. So you don't have to build your own network to be involved with, uh, with you know, important projects. So, for example, in Scotland, um, I know there are towns and cities where there are hardly any international people living there. But there are also organisations like the Scottish Business Network, which is, uh, you know, an international group of Scots, but also international people who have an affiliation to Scotland or just an interest in Scotland um, that you can join. So you could join Scottish Business Network and you could get involved with the networking events that they have online, for example, you know, with Brazil or with India, or whatever it is. Um, if you want to try something yourself, then I think the first thing is to build a small community around you of like-minded people and then to, to establish a platform and if you're talking about concrete events for engagement with people overseas, I think one that's always an easy one to run is maybe a career talk, you know, to get someone who's working in, a, in an industry abroad to give a, a talk. And then off the back of that, you can network and kind of ask questions and, and build a better understanding. Um, but you can also do more kind of socially minded things. You get involved with charitable um, initiatives. If there's an opportunity for you as a Scottish student to go and help with a project in, in Africa, like take it, you know, take the opportunity. They are, they are available. What's the role of diaspora abroad? Because yeah. uh, we have many Scottish people abroad, but not mm -hmm. only Scottish, I think maybe all nationalities, almost all nationalities, they have like tremendous amount of people worldwide. And imagine I have, a, I have a student initiative in Edinburgh. Um, I joined the Scottish Business Network and all those professional organizations. And now I would love to say a few words to those guys abroad, how to do it. How, what should I do to, to address my goals, visions to those people who are living in Singapore, America, Africa, Europe, and they are Scottish, they might help but they also might be very busy and they don't reply to the emails. Well, that's not really been uh, my experience. I, I think 
I can say with confidence that the diaspora is very important because you have to understand that it's not easy to get up and move to another country, right? It takes a certain type of person that's able to do that, that's able to to go and live in a country where, for example, your native language might not be the language spoken there. So you're already at a disadvantage. You're putting yourself at a disadvantage by living in that environment. Um, and we're not even going to talk about maybe the difference in climate or whatever, you know, you're used to food, all the cultural elements that are totally alien, perhaps. So it takes a certain type of person that is um, driven and motivated, that moves abroad uh, to take advantage of opportunities internationally. So in my experience, those uh, traits make for very um, easy to connect with people. So they normally have time to speak with with uh, like-minded people. Uh, they make um, quite a quite a large effort to be helpful as well in my experience. And so um, I wouldn't be put off by, you know, oh, perhaps they might be too busy to reply to to um, a message. Give it a go. In all likelihood, they will reply and they'll be very useful people to to be in contact with. Right. And the last question about the student initiatives, it's called identity. What should student initiative have in digital world? I mean, website, social networks, maybe YouTube channel. What are the trends now and what do you consider as the most important to have? So when you present yourself, people can see some identity, who you are. Mm. I think I can say at the moment the most important thing would be Instagram. <laughs> okay. Uh, promoting our organization, we we have websites, we have um, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, um, but Instagram is very important because one, our target audience, and that's an important thing you have to identify who your target audience is, um, and we focus on working closely with students. And the format of Instagram is, is just more appealing to, 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 to the younger generation than, um, you know, going through websites or, or even LinkedIn. Um, it's, it's dynamic, it's interactive. Uh, you can get, I think, quite an interesting balance on Instagram between the professional and the, the more personal, the more sort of interactive and fun. Um, we tend to balance our Instagram um, posts with the more serious event-focused posts, but also highlighting our team members, putting a face to the name, making it feel more familiar. Uh, but then if you are looking to engage with um, perhaps professionals or businesses or corporations, it is important that you have a website. There has to be some sort of um, online footprint and it can't just be Instagram, that's not enough. Uh, there needs to be LinkedIn. You need to show that degree of professionalism. And also you would normally have a LinkedIn page if you're interested in connecting with professionals across the world. Um, and really those three in combination are um, quite powerful to further the aims of whatever organization you're running. Right. Thank you very much for this, this uh, good piece of advice for people, what to have and how to form their identity. Now let's jump to you to your scholarship. Schwartzmann Scholarship, and you're going to China in a few months. So can you please tell us what does it mean, the Schwartzmann Scholarship? Well, the Schwartzmann Scholarship is a unique scholarship. It is founded by um, Stephen Schwartzmann, who is the, the founder of Blackstone. 
And it is a program designed for future leaders to study in Beijing at Tsinghua University and to really you know, achieve a number of things. First of all, to gain a better understanding of China. And Steve Schwartzman believes that, you know, it is important for future leaders, especially from the Western world, if you will, um, to at least have a base understanding of, of China, its, you know, its culture, its people, its society, uh, its politics, its economics. It is a very important country to have at least a basic level of knowledge about. So it's a unique opportunity um, to actually learn about China from within China. But also it gathers talent from across the world. So it's a fantastic opportunity to meet, um, like we were saying before, you know, the, the advantage of having um, a lot of international people concentrated in one place, especially if they're you know, talented and driven, is that you're able to build a network in one place that then has an impact in the future across the world. And so the Schwarzman Scholarship, um, it's a rigorous process, the application. Uh, it really does take quite a lot to, to, to get through to the interview stage. And, the, you know, after that, the panel, the interview panel is quite challenging as well. So you end up with with people in the program who really, really want to be there. They have hopefully the skills to be there. So what motivated you to get into this scholarship and why China? Usually people go to London, California, Silicon Valley, New York or Paris business schools and all MBA programs. And, and you're going to China. Yeah, <laughs> so for me, it's um, maybe different to some of the other the scholars. I've always been very fascinated in China. You know, I, you mentioned earlier, I did Chinese um, at my undergraduate, sort of the, the integrated master's level. Um, I did Chinese at school. I've always been fascinated by China from a young, very young age. So I chose the degree program at Edinburgh because it had a year abroad built into it. And unfortunately, um, it aligned with COVID. And so the year abroad was cancelled, which was a real shame. Uh, I wanted to go back to China. I went once uh, in 2016. I've wanted to go back ever since. And this program is just fantastic because, as you said before, most of the scholarships are in uh, the UK and the United States, you know, the, you've got things like the Rhodes Scholarship, Marshall Scholarship, all of those sort of, um, you know, the MBAs at Harvard. And this is really adding something unique to that list of scholarships by having something in China. Um, and so the opportunity to live in China for a year, to be in a prestigious program that rivals any of the programs in the UK or the United States, um, was for me a no-brainer a no and that's really why I uh, applied and also because in the future I would like to um, do something that where at least a knowledge of China is required. Right, two follow-up questions. The first one, what are you going to study in China? Like what sort of modules or, or courses? And the second one, who is teaching in China? Like Chinese mm -hmm. professors or international professors? This is This is quite important to know. Hmm. Well, uh, just coming to that second point first, I think that um, it's always difficult when you speak about China, when you speak about engaging with China, you're always going to have the hawks and the doves. No, you know, no matter what you say, there are going to be people who accuse you of, you know, cozying up to Chinese communists. And there are going to be people who 
accuse you of being too critical of China and and being too negative in in outlook. So the advantage of going there with the Schwarzman Scholarship Programme is that they really try to get a balance and that reflects in the teaching as well. So you have almost, I think, a 50-50 split between um, Tsinghua University professors who are excellent. You know, Tsinghua is the the best university in Asia. It's the best university in China. Uh, But also you have professors that come um, to teach from abroad. So I think mainly from the United States, um, and so you get that that balance. They come for six months or a year. They teach a particular course and then they go back. So it's unique in that sense. I don't know any other um, scenario in a university where you would have such a nice balance between teachers who come from overseas and local teachers as well. Okay. And the modules? Or and the modules. Well? Yes, of course, the modules. Um, so it's, uh, I think, you know, from a, an English, uh, from a Scottish, European and point of view, it's maybe slightly um, d- different because the style of masters is is more uh, in the American sense, you know, majoring and minoring. Uh, that's at least my understanding. So the masters that you receive is in global affairs, but you are able to choose and select from a variety of modules that cover um, politics, uh, that cover tech and uh, finance, economics, trade. So you can really customize and tailor your um, course selections to match with what you'd like to do after the scholarship. Right. And your class, is it going to be mostly international people or is it going to be mixed international people and Chinese people? Mm. How is this in practice? Well, that's another kind of unique thing with the scholarship is that um, they the, the majority of students in the scholarship are actually American students because um, you know Stephen Schwartzman he's American he, uh, he he obviously wants to give opportunities to students from his home country to come and, and study in China uh, so um, I say majority but it's not actually it's not an absolute majority so uh, there are actually I think between 30 and 40 nationalities represented in the in the cohorts um, next year in, in Schwarzman College. Uh, and that also includes uh, local Chinese students as well. And actually, I think the, the local Chinese students make up the second largest um, cohort sort of group of students after the American students. So in, in a broad sense, it's sort of like uh, Americans make up the majority, the second largest majority of Chinese. And then it's kind of like the rest of the world. You've got people from from the remaining kind of continents. Um, but it makes for an even balance. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what the student experience is like having all of those uh, different nationalities represented there. Yeah, I already see many opportunities that you can get because if you deal with those people from different parts of the world, you can spread ideas in the class and you have the whole world just Mm. in front of you. But what's about challenges? Going to China in these Mm. times when we associate China slightly with Russia slightly with war in Ukraine and that sort of geopolitical climate. So Mm -hmm. firstly, what sort of cultural challenges are you expecting? And secondly, the personal ones to live in China as a student? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, China tends these days to be a very polarizing um, topic of debate in the UK. And you have to also remember it's a huge country. It's very complex. It has 1.4 billion people. Um, I have not to this day really met any foreigner 
that has a total understanding um, or at least very few that have a total understanding of how the Chinese political system works um, and how the government functions and operates. Um, and actually, I think uh, that is kind of the reason why I'm going to China is to get a better understanding of how the, the country functions and how it operates, but also how its people think. Because in my experience, you know, Chinese people, um, they do think slightly differently uh, in some ways, but also very similarly in others. So it's a dangerous game to kind of take this Manichaean black and white approach to uh, to China. Um, what I would say uh, in relation to the challenges of living there, there is more censorship in China. It is a more author authoritarian society. You have to, if you're going to be in the country, you know, be aware of the, the rules. And I think that's going to be challenging. Um, you can't say certain things on social media. You just have to accept that there is more limited freedom of speech in China. And uh, you do put yourself in danger if you discuss certain topics openly on social media. Uh, so that is something to, to be aware of, especially for students that are kind of engaged in global affairs and that do take a stance on on a lot of uh, uh, important issues globally. Uh, the other thing is that uh, you have to be aware of the personal challenges. And that's kind of what your second question was. Uh, one obvious one is the language. Uh, I have studied Chinese. My Chinese is OK, but it needs to be a whole lot better. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see for me how many um, Chinese I come across that speak you know, good English, because you can study French and go to France and pretty much everyone speaks very good, if not passable English, uh, and you never have to speak a word of French. So I'm hoping that I'll be forced to kind of practice some Chinese as well uh, as, as a personal challenge. Um, but other than that, I think, you know, it remains to be seen what, what major personal challenges um, arise. Uh, I have to say one thing that I find very um, difficult is the Chinese internet is uh, very, very hard to navigate if you don't um, speak Chinese. If you ever tried buying something on a Chinese um, website like Alibaba or something in Chinese, I mean, forget it. It's just impossible. It's, it's just a wall of characters that make no sense at all because they have a name, the names of things. So um, I need to get a better understanding of how the Chinese internet kind of operates and how to use it. Right. And are you going to be living in a family, a Chinese family, or is going to be like private accommodation? Yeah, it's, it is private accommodation, but there are also um, travel opportunities uh, that are offered on the program to go to rural China, which is something I'm very excited to, to hopefully take up. Um, and I think there, there you do get the chance to live, if not, you know, if, if only briefly with, um, with locals. I also, and this is where I come back to the international community from the local kind of geographic space. I have lots of friends that um, live in Beijing from that I've made, you know, in Edinburgh. So, you know, I've never met them in China. These are friends that have been living in, in Edinburgh, but who are native Chinese and who uh, a lot of them do come from Beijing. So I feel very um, excited and lucky to have um, a, a kind of a quite a large base of, of uh, friends and acquaintances that I'll be able to call on when I'm in China, um, who I've you know got quite close to um, in my four or five years in Scotland. Right. And as you were involved or you are involved in the One Scotland Initiative, is there a culture in China that Chinese students are coming with their initiatives internationally? Yeah, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting one. Now, uh, it kind of goes back to the 
the point that I raised before about freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a hesitancy, a rightful hesitancy um, from students, from Chinese students who are abroad um, to start uh, organizations uh, or initiatives um, because, you know, a lot of them are on, on government funded scholarships. Right. And uh, you, you know, they do require um, input and approval from their sponsors to actually go ahead and especially get involved with kind of political initiatives. I think it's a different it's a different matter if you're talking about cultural in initiatives. There's, you know, there's actually a lot of encouragement from the, what I've seen from the Chinese side um, to uh, have collaborative cultural events that are led by Chinese students. So in, in Edinburgh, uh, for example, there's the Chinese Students and Scholars Association um, that works with with various other stakeholders to um, promote Chinese culture, but uh, it's a it's a tough one, I think, for for Chinese students because you know you have to be very careful of what you say and do when you're abroad. It can reflect on on you and then impact your career um, later down the line. And uh, British students abroad just don't have the, the, those same um, worries, uh, which I think is you know more liberating for British students to be able to um, take the initiative abroad. Are you planning to share that experience with us in form of blog, maybe a video on YouTube from China, so we know or we can see you in practice how the scholarship is going? Yeah, I think it, I think it might be something interesting to to do. I've not really decided yet in what what form that will take. Um, I certainly want to keep a record for myself, at least for the future, to kind of look back and see what it was like, uh, you know, in, in 40, 50 years, uh, relive some of those experiences and those memories. Um, videos would be great. I'm not a videographer. I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> have no experience running a YouTube channel, but um, I hope that going abroad will push me to actually start something like that. And um, and if not a video diary, at least kind of keep a a written uh, record of some of the more interesting experiences in China. Right. And for people who are aspiring to do something like you do, the process of selection for the scholarship, the process of applying, what do you think are the most important elements, maybe skills, maybe certificates, maybe some achievements that students should do before they apply for scholarships? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the type of scholarship. Some are more academically focused. So there is another scholarship in Beijing called the Yanqing Scholars, which is at um, Beida University, Peking University. And uh, that is more focused on language and literature. And so they require, um, you know, like all scholarships, but they, they focus particularly on the academic achievements um, that, that you have. The Schwarzman Scholarship is a leadership scholarship, and so they focus more on, you know, how have you demonstrated leadership? They look for examples in your uh, local environment. You know, have you been a leader in the student population, the student community? Have you um, founded charities or startups? And so depending on the scholarship, you have to basically meet those criteria so with the Schwarzman scholarship, there's not much point applying um, to the scholarship if you haven't had any leadership experience before. They do expect you to have at least some leadership experience that you can talk about in the applications process. 
if you haven't had leadership experience, uh, that's fine. You can apply to a whole host of other um, other scholarships, or you can wait a little while, start your career, and then come back and do a scholarship later. So Schwartzman um, accepts, I think, scholars up to the age of 28, and quite a lot of the um, people on my cohort, at least, have uh, already started careers in consulting or finance or startups, whatever it is. You can come back once you've acquired some experience and apply. Let's go to the future a little bit. Let's pretend it's 2025 and you finish your scholarship and you return to Europe. What would you do after that? Uh, it's a difficult one. For me, it's always the, the question uh, of the public sphere or the private sphere. Um, I would very much like to uh, to be um, you know, representing the United Kingdom abroad. Uh, I feel you know passionately about my country, and I think we have a lot to offer. Um, so I would, you know, I would definitely consider diplomacy um, as an as an option. And if not that, then uh, there are plenty of um, of organisations that work closely with the government. At the same time, I think uh, it is a very difficult situation um, if you're a, a British citizen at the moment. You know, I. Uh, my mom is originally from Germany. Uh, I think Brexit was something that I still fundamentally think was a mistake and will do lasting damage to the UK um, and will also affect its ability to project influence globally. Um, and the question then becomes, are you able to have more of an impact by working in the private sphere than in the public sphere? And for me, I think the word impact is important. Uh, obviously, you know, income um, at least to sustain your your life at a, at a basic level is important. But uh, for me, impact and being able to make a difference um, is something that uh, sounds corny and kind of cheesy, but is is important to living a fulfilled life. For me, I want to be able to look back, uh, you know, and and at least have be able to give one example where I've made a, a positive difference in my career. Fantastic. Max, thank you very much for this interview with us, for sharing your knowledge, talking about the skills and talking about the scholarship, the students' initiatives. I think it was very educational for our viewers because it's always important to bring the perspective from students, especially as in my case, I'm a lecturer, so I always try to listen to students and to implement modern thoughts, modern methods, technology, into education so we can together pursue some international goals, initiatives, and we can work together. Max, good luck with the scholarship. And I think we should do the next round of the interview after you finish the scholarship so you can share the practical experience from China. Thank you very much for joining us and see you next time. Thank you so much, Martin, for giving me this opportunity. I'm very grateful. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.